Okay, well, the students are mostly gone, the snow has arrived, and now we gather as the faithful remnant here at EVF. Uh, it's a privilege to be here this morning, very uh, thankful to be here. This is a stressful time because there are few things in my household that are more polarizing than Christmas carols. Rachel and I, my wife Rachel and I, we love Christmas music, but we have some pretty intense debates in our house about which songs are good, which songs are bad, how long do you have to wait until you start listening to Christmas music, does Thanksgiving have to pass, maybe October, September, can you start in August? So I just want to settle one of those debates right now by taking a quick poll, okay? Can I get a show of hands? Anybody who thinks that the, uh, the song, The Little Drummer Boy, is a bad song, please raise your hand. Come on, let's see the haters. Raise your hand if you really do not like the song, The Little Drummer Boy. I mean, I'm kind of surprised there are that many. I mean, I grant that the lyrics are somewhat repetitive, but come on, it's, it's this apocryphal tale of a poor little boy and his drum, coming with no gifts to give and yet playing his little heart out for the baby Jesus. How can you not love that? Come on. <laughs> I'll agree to disagree, okay? Uh, well, Christmas has always been a time for singing. Here at EBF, every year we've got the jazz Christmas service on television and on the radio. There's always all kinds of holiday concerts and special musical broadcasts. The historic liturgy of the church is also filled with songs that celebrate the birth of Jesus. And when you turn to the Christmas story in the pages of Scripture, what you find is that from the very beginning, Christmas has always been a time for singing. It's really interesting. The story of the birth of Jesus is told in two Gospels, Matthew and Luke. And Luke's version of that story is filled with characters within the narrative singing songs about what's happening with the birth of Jesus. You might think of it as the original Christmas carols. They're called Luke's infancy hymns. And today and next week and on Christmas Eve, we're going to be spending the next three sermons looking at these three songs that characters in the story sing in Luke's gospel. Now, each of the three infancy hymns has a fancy Latin name, and so I'd want to run through those up here on the slide for you. The Latin name is derived from the first word in the Latin translation of the hymn. So the first infancy hymn is Mary's Magnificat. Okay, let's practice some Latin. Repeat after me. Magnificat. Not bad. We'll see how the next one goes. Okay, Mary's Magnificat is the song that Mary, the mother of Jesus, sings uh, whenever she receives the news that she's going to give birth to the baby Jesus. That song starts out with the line, my soul magnifies the Lord. And that word magnifies is the first word in the Latin translation of the song, magnificat. Okay? The second uh, infancy hymn is called the Benedictus. Let's hear you say that. Benedictus. Excellent. Okay. Uh, that's the song that Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, sings uh, at the birth of his child. Okay? And that song starts with the line, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And so uh, that word blessed is the first word of the Latin translation, benedictus. And then the third infancy hymn, this one's the trickiest, okay? The nunc dimittis, okay? Repeat after me, nunc dimittis. Okay, and that's the song that the aged Saint Simeon sings whenever he sees the baby Jesus at the temple in Jerusalem in Luke chapter 2. That song starts with the line, Now you are releasing your servant in peace. 
And those words, now you are releasing, are the Latin words, nunc dimittis, okay? So those are Luke's three infancy hymns, and these songs are really important in Luke's gospel. It's pretty cool, actually, what Luke accomplishes through these three songs. They do three really important things in Luke's text, okay? First of all, Luke's infancy hymns give us a theological interpretation of the Christmas story. They're kind of like little freeze-frame pop-up commentaries on the story of the birth of Jesus, where we hit the pause button on the advancement of the plot, and we get this rich interpretation of what all of these events actually mean at the theological level. So the way it works is that Luke will describe a series of events, and then he'll give us a song, and then he'll describe another series of events, and give us another song, and then he'll describe another series of events, and he'll give us another song. And because we have these songs placed at strategic points throughout the narrative, we get this really rich interpretation of what God is doing through the birth of this baby Jesus and how it fits into his big plans for the world. They're kind of like little freeze-frame pop-up commentaries. That's the first thing that these infancy hymns do in Luke's gospel. They give us a theological interpretation of Jesus' birth in their immediate context. Now, on top of that, in the broader context of Luke's narrative, these songs also introduce us to many of the major themes that are going to play out over the whole of Jesus' life and ministry. It's pretty cool. If you look at these uh, songs in detail and really pay close attention to what's going on there, they will introduce you to virtually all of the major themes that are going to play out over the whole course of Jesus' life. So if you want to know what Jesus was really about, what his mission was, what he was trying to accomplish through his teaching and life and ministry, well then the infancy hymns are a great place to start because they're going to introduce you to pretty much all the major themes that are going to play out over the rest of Luke's story of the life of Jesus. And then on top of all of that, These songs also give us faithful characters modeling a faithful perspective and posture toward God. When we look at these songs today and next week and on Christmas Eve, we're going to see that Mary and Zechariah and Simeon were amazing examples of faith. And we can look at how they approached the Lord and we can learn from their example. We're, We're calling this sermon series Songs of Hope because from these songs you can see that Mary and Zechariah and Simeon were people of unshakable hope. And I'm convinced that if we can come to see the birth of Jesus like they saw the conception of that child, then we're going to become people of unshakable hope too. All right, so I'm excited for us to go through this uh, sermon series together. Uh, Why don't we go ahead and pray, and then we'll jump into the first song, Mary's Magnificat, where she praises God for the conception of Jesus. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, at the Christmas season, it is so easy, God, to get caught up in the consumerism of this world around us. And so it's a common feeling for many of us to feel a great weight of anxiety, discontentment, jealousy, loneliness, as we look around at our lives and we feel that our desires have not been satisfied. Our expectations have not been met. Our passions, Lord, are misplaced. God, turn our hearts back to you this morning. Center our thoughts on your word. Capture our imagination so that we might see what Mary saw when she looked at the birth of Jesus. Remind us today, Lord, of the reasons that we have to sing and place on our lips a genuine song of hope. Amen.
Does God care? Do you ever find yourself asking that question? Does God care? Maybe for you that's a very personal sort of question. You look at your life and it feels like it's a mess. Your relationships are strained. Your work's not what you want it to be. You're filled with anxiety, worried about the future. Does God care? Or maybe for you, that's not such an introspective sort of question. It's more the question that comes to mind from time to time as you look outward at the world around you and you have a hard time finding where God might be in all the messiness and brokenness and disorder that you see in the news. It seems like good people are suffering, bad people are doing whatever they want. This world is filled with pain, injustice, oppression. Does God even care? That might be a question that you find yourself asking this holiday season as you look at your own life and think about the world around you. I would suggest it's certainly a question that many of God's people were likely to have been asking at the time of the original Christmas season. Think back to that first Christmas. The year was somewhere between 7 and 4 BC. The king over God's people was Herod the Great this crackpot tyrant obsessed with his own celebrity and power. All the leaders of God's people at the temple in Jerusalem were corrupt. Taxes were out of control. Law enforcement was crooked. Minorities were terrorized. Regular people were going hungry in the streets while the fat cats back in Rome were living it up. If you were a pious Jew living in the land of Israel, if you were somebody like Mary, the mother of Jesus then it's likely from time to time you might have asked that question, does God care? Well, Christmas is God's yes to that question. It might seem like everything is broken. It might feel like there's no justice. It might appear that God is absent. But don't mistake in God's patience for indifference. God cares and Christmas proves it. That's the message of Mary's song that she sings whenever she celebrates the news of what God is doing through the birth of this baby Jesus. She celebrates the fact that the birth of this baby shows that God cares. God cares about injustice in the world and God cares about the seemingly small and insignificant details of your personal life. And Christmas is a time when we're reminded of just how much God cares. That's the message of Mary's song of hope. Magnificat, her soul magnifies the Lord because the birth of this baby shows how much God cares. That's what Mary's song is all about in Luke chapter 1. Why don't we go ahead and turn over to the first chapter of Luke's gospel and let's look at this song that Mary sings. Luke chapter 1. The song starts in verse 46 of Luke chapter 1, but just to set a little bit of the context here, we're at a baby shower, okay? Uh, At this point in the story, an angel has already appeared to Mary and let her know that she's going to give birth to the Messiah. Uh, That's going to be a miraculous sort of thing because Mary Mary is a virgin, uh, and yet she responds to that angel with total trust. And after that angel has visited her, Mary goes uh, from her town in Nazareth and she goes to Judea and visits her relative Elizabeth, who is also pregnant in a miraculous way. And the two of those women, they celebrate their pregnancies together. And that's where Mary sings this song that she sings, starting in verse 46. 
So it's basically a baby shower. They, they probably played the diaper derby, or guess the baby food, or uh, wh what's that game where you stick your nose in the diaper and try to guess whether it's poop or candy? I don't, I don't remember uh, what that game is. I, I've heard that that happens at baby showers. May have happened in the first century, I'm not quite sure. Uh, but, but at any rate, that's the setting here for Mary's song. Maybe that should become a tradition in our uh, baby showers at EBF, that the expectant mom sings uh, for everybody who's in attendance. Uh, but anyway, that's, where, that's what uh, the setting is for Mary's song here. And let's start reading verse 46. Notice how Mary's song starts with a personal declaration of praise. Read with me in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. That's a personal declaration of praise. Mary, from her inmost being, is praising God here in these first two lines of the song. I want you to notice the terms, the titles that Mary uses to refer to God here in the song. Look at that first line. Mary refers to the Lord. That's kind of the proper name of the God of Israel. So Mary starts off by identifying which God it is that she's wor worshiping here. But then look in the second line at Mary uh, and how she describes this God that she's just identified. She refers to him as God, my Savior. And it'd be easy to just read those words and pass right on by without even thinking about the weight of Mary's word choice here. But out of all the different ways that Mary could have referred to God, the one facet of God's identity that sticks out to her the most in her personal situation is that God is her Savior. Not her king, not her guide, not her shepherd, not her rock, not her fortress, not her light. All of those would have been biblical, true ways of talking about God. But no, for Mary, at this moment, the thing that matters to her is that God is her Savior the one who rescues her. And if you think about that, it's a very personal, very humble sort of way to think about God and approach him. To call God her Savior implies that Mary sees herself as being in need of saving. And it also implies that she sees that God is willing and able to do that saving on her behalf. So Mary recognizes her need for deliverance, and at the birth of this baby, she sees God's capability and willingness to be her savior. And the rest of this song, then, is going to go on and unpack and explain why it is that Mary can praise God in that way. It basically gives us an explanation, a definition of what it means for God to be Mary's savior. And as we look at the song, we're going to see that Mary's explanation has three points, three basic parts, three simple ways that the birth of Jesus gives her a confident hope in God as her Savior. But those three points can really be boiled down to just two words. God cares. God cares about the circumstances of her life as an individual. God cares about justice for the lowly and oppressed. And God cares about the promises that he makes to his people. The birth of Jesus shows that God cares. Those were the three points of the psalm, but really it's all one main point. The birth of Jesus shows that God cares. And so Mary can praise God as her Savior from her inmost being because she knows that this baby shows just how much God cares. Let's go ahead and read in the passage. Keep reading, starting at verse 48, and look at how this all unfolds. Mary starts first by praising God as her Savior because of her confident trust 
in his personal care for her and the circumstances of her life. Look at verse 48 here. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. If Mary were on Twitter, she would have added hashtag blessed. Okay, notice here in this passage all the personal pronouns that have taken place so far. Look at all the personal pronouns. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he's looked on the humble estate of his servant, singular there. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. This is a very personal declaration of praise, celebrating God's blessing upon Mary as an individual. That's the first reason for a confident hope in God as her Savior. This baby in her womb has left her convinced that God really cares about the circumstances of her individual life. Don't miss just how remarkable Mary's faith is right here. She is a pregnant teenager, having a baby outside of wedlock, living in a place where everybody around her would have been absolutely scandalized by what was taking place in her pregnancy. She probably didn't have much formal education. She definitely didn't have any real means of providing for herself. Her livelihood, her well-being, all of that would have been entirely dependent on forces outside of her control. Everything we know about where Mary came from in the world of the first century suggests that she would have been socially ostracized, economically disadvantaged, and completely dependent on the benefaction of others. And yet here she is in this text praising God for his special concern and favor upon her. Look at what she's doing. She is looking at her circumstances as an unwed pregnant teenager through the lens of faith And she sees God's hand of blessing on her in them. She's able to know that the birth of this baby, the fact that there is this child in her womb, is enough for her to know that she is blessed by God, even though there is nothing in her personal circumstances that would lead an outside observer in Palestine to see God's hand of favor on Mary. She has no sense of entitlement. And so she can praise God with wonder that God would choose to use her as a part of his big work in the world. Keep in mind that at this point in the story, Mary is pregnant, but the baby hasn't been born yet. All generations will call her blessed, but right now folks in Nazareth are probably calling her some other things. Mary has a long and difficult road to travel. She could have focused on what she was losing. She could have resented God for what was going on in her life. Instead, she looked at her life through the lens of faith and trusted that this baby in her womb was proof of God's favor on her. Don't miss the lesson here in this text. God's blessing doesn't mean that life is going to be easy. You know, sometimes at Christmas, uh, it's very easy to judge how blessed we are by God by looking at our material blessings. How many Christmas presents he got under the tree? whether you got the promotion at work, whether the friendships and relationships in your life are going well. 
And those are great things. Those are gifts that God chooses to give. The Bible says that every good and perfect gift is from above. So if life is going well, hey, that's great. Praise God. But don't make the mistake of judging God's blessing in your life by how smoothly your life is going. Sometimes the sign of God's blessing in your life is that everything is crashing down in the world around you. That's what was happening with Mary here in this text. And yet you know that God is using you in a special way to accomplish his purposes. Maybe one day you lose your job. That doesn't feel like a blessing. But your children are watching. And the way you trust God and the way God provides through that process convinces your children that God is real. And they're going to end up living and walking with the Lord in a way they never would have done if life was just smooth sailing. That's not easy, but that's how God works. That's God's blessing. See, we need to learn to be like Mary and start judging God's blessing from a different scorecard. When you look at this passage, Mary was thinking about her life and judging God's blessing with a different scorecard. She was able to look at her circumstances and though there were a lot of things that she could have focused on, been stressed out about, she was able to look at her life with a different scorecard and recognize that whatever she had to give up in order to give birth to this child, the fact that there was this baby in her womb was proof enough that she was blessed by God. You know, if you have a relationship with the Lord through Jesus Christ, then just like Mary, God has chosen you for a specific purpose. And that plan that he has for your life might involve some sacrifice. It might involve some pain, some loss. Will you resent God for what you have to give up? Or like Mary, will you count it a privilege and a blessing to be used as a part of his greater plans? That's Mary's first reason for her confident hope in God as her Savior. She's able to look at this baby and see it as evidence of God's blessing on her life, that God cares about her and her personal circumstances as an individual. Okay, and then as the song goes on, as Mary moves past these verses, she shifts her focus from a personal uh, uh, reflection on her circumstances as an individual, and she gives us a second explanation, a second reason for a confident hope in the Lord as her Savior. And, uh, and we can go ahead and look at that right now. Not only is God's blessing on her life evident in terms of her personal circumstances as an individual, but Christmas also shows to Mary that God cares about injustice in the world around her. God is a God who cares about justice for the lowly and oppressed. That's the second way that Christmas shows Mary what it means for God to be her Savior. Read with me in verses 50 through 53 here. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. I want you to notice two things about these verses here in this passage. First of all, notice how these verses communicate a message of reversal. All right, they communicate a message of reversal. The, uh, the uh, proud are scattered in the thoughts of their hearts. God has brought down the mighty from their thrones. The humble are exalted. The hungry are filled with good things. The rich are sent away empty. It's a message of reversal 
And it's a, it's a conviction about the character of God that Mary can see playing out in her own circumstances with the birth of this child. That the Messiah is not going to be born to royal parents at a palace as a prince. Instead, Jesus is going to be born to an unwed teenage mother in a manger in the poor little town of Bethlehem. That's a reversal of the social order where God is entering into the corrupt power structures of this world and overturning them, bringing down the proud and mighty rulers and exalting the humble and lowly. God cares about justice for the lowly and oppressed. Don't miss what's going on here in the message that Mary is communicating in this song. Christmas, the Christmas story, is the story of God intervening into the present social order and radically reversing the corrupt power structures of this world as we know it. It's a story of God's justice and mercy for the lowly and oppressed, bringing it to the world that he's made. When Mary praises God as her Savior, that's what she has in mind. And this is so important, so, so important for us as a community today because, you know, a lot of times when we think about that language of salvation, we take it and we make it something really abstract. And we think of God being our Savior in very individualistic terms. And then we sort of make it this otherworldly reality, the promise of a future salvation that each of us gets in heaven through faith in Jesus Christ because he died for our sins. That's all good. That's beautiful stuff. But here with Mary and in the New Testament more generally, salvation a lot of times is much more of a concrete here and now kind of a thing. When Mary is praising God as our Savior in this test and when we think of God as our Savior, it's it's not always so much about us escaping this world and going to heaven. It's more about heaven coming into this broken world and setting things straight. To judge by Mary's song here, when we call God our Savior, it's not just that we're saying we've got a ticket to heaven when we die. We're saying and we're acknowledging that this world is a broken, messed up place and that God and Jesus Christ is doing something about it. That's the message of Mary's song here where she praises God as her Savior and then goes on to explain what that means in terms of God's justice and mercy for the lowly and oppressed. Let's not move on from that message too quickly. We need to meditate on that deeply as a congregation here in Chicago this Christmas season. We live in a segregated city. Our world is sharply divided between the haves and the have-nots. What if our church was a place that took it upon itself to prove the truth of Mary's song here? What if we were a place that lived out the gospel of reversal in this message that Mary sings? See, our church should be a place where the hungry are filled with good things, a place where the lowly are exalted, a place where the justice of God results in a radically different sort of community, a place that models a social order that stands out as being different from the segregated world around us. We ought to be a place where doctors and business executives and professors are sitting down, eating meals with, praying with, living life together with janitors, mechanics, starving artists, a place that exalts the single moms and immigrants, a place where there's no distinction in social standing between any of our members, regardless of their ethnicity, the size of their bank accounts. That's the vision that's bound up in Mary's hymn here in this passage, a teenage mother praising God for a special concern and favor for the lowly and oppressed. 
That's something that's going on in Mary's life. It's also something that we see play out in the life of Jesus. As you read Luke's gospel, this becomes one of the major themes of what's, uh, what unfolds in Jesus' life. God's special concern for the lowly and the marginalized and oppressed. From beginning to end, the story of Jesus Christ is one that is filled with examples of him reaching out to the outcasts and touching the untouchables. So think about your experience here at EBF. How are we doing with that? Are we living that out? Maybe it's kind of hard to uh, think about. So I'll give you a really simple uh, test for this. Really simple litmus test that lets you evaluate how well we're doing and actually living out this vision of reversal, okay? It might sound kind of funny for you. But who is sitting around the table with you at your meals? Really simple litmus test because as you read the Gospels, what you find is that this vision of reversal, most of the time for Jesus, it played out around the table. So one simple way for us to see how we're doing, living this stuff out, is to look at who we're eating our meals with. Are we opening up our homes and sitting around a common table and breaking bread and sharing life with a diverse group of people from all kinds of different backgrounds? That doesn't happen in the world. The best the world can do is give charity at a distance. That's only going to happen in our community if we're intentional about it. If we really believe that God is a God of justice and mercy who cares about his favor for the lowly and oppressed, the marginalized. If we really believe that, we're going to be a different sort of community from the world around us. The other thing I want you to notice about these verses that we just looked at uh, here in the text is notice the timing of all the verbs here. Look again at the passage. Notice that all these verbs are past time, okay? He has shown strength. He has scattered the proud. He has brought down the mighty. He has exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry. He has sent the rich away empty. All past time. Mary is singing about all of these reversals as if they've already occurred which is pretty remarkable because at this point in the story, in terms of what an outside observer in Palestine would have been able to see, God hasn't really done anything yet. Mary's just an unwed pregnant teenager living in a podunk town in Galilee. The proud and mighty rulers over God's people are still in charge. The poor are still poor and oppressed. The hungry are still hungry. Jesus in his ministry is going to start doing something about all of that and reversing it, but right now, hasn't happened yet. And yet Mary has such a confidence in the character of God, such a clarity about God's big plans for the world, that she can praise God in this song at this moment as though all of these reversals that she's singing about have already occurred. That's an example that we can really learn from. Mary was a woman of unshakable hope. It would have been very easy for her to look at the circumstances of her life and play the victim. It would have been easy for Mary to be pessimistic that anything was actually going to change with the birth of this child. And yet she was confident enough in the character of God that she knew that God cared about injustice in the world and she was a woman of unshakable hope. If the people who know you best were to try to come up with some ways of describing you, would they describe you as a hopeful person? Would that be the sort of language that would come to their minds. I get the news is depressing. I know there are lots of things where you look at the world and it's easy to see injustice, oppression, plenty of reasons to be pessimistic, cynical, 
I know hope is an audacious sort of thing these days. But Christmas is a time when we're reminded that no matter what might be going on in the world around us, as Christians, we ought to be hopeful people because we know that God really does care about the injustice and messiness that we see in the world and experience in our lives. He cares enough that he put his own skin in the game and he's doing something about it. That's the message of Christmas and it ought to make us hopeful people. Okay, so we've seen that God cares about the personal circumstances of our lives. That makes Mary judge her life with a different scorecard when she thinks about God's blessing. We've seen that God cares about justice and mercy for the lowly and oppressed. That makes Mary a woman of unshakable hope. Now let's look at the end of Mary's song and see the third reason that she gives for her confident trust in God as her Savior. Look at verses 54 and 55, how this song ends. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. God cares about the promises he makes to his people. That's what Mary is saying here in this third reason that she gives for a confident hope in God as her Savior. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. You can take it to the bank. God cares about the promises he makes to his people. Notice as you look at the progression of this hymn how Mary is connecting the dots from her experience as an unwed teenage mother to the big picture of God's big promises of national blessing for Israel. This is so important when we look at Mary's example here in this passage. She knows God's promises. She knows God's big picture plans. And then she is able to look at the circumstances of her life and what feels crazy and see how it fits into that big picture. And that's why Mary can look at the birth of this child, think about the conception of Jesus, and she doesn't see it as an inconvenient interruption into her plans for the future. She doesn't see it as this unplanned crisis that's destroying her life. She recognizes that it's God making good on his big promises to his people. What he always said he was going to do, now he's accomplishing it. It's the fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham. See, Mary is connecting the dots from her personal experience to God's big work in the world. She's viewing her own circumstances through the lens of the biblical story of reality. She sees her life in light of God's big promises, and that changes everything for her. She, because she can connect those dots and draw that line to what God's big work is in the world and how she fits into that. That is what makes Mary a woman of unshakable hope, a woman who is able to sing this song that she sings here in this passage. We really need to learn from that kind of example. Uh, The way Mary is doing that, if you are anxious, if you are weighed down with stress over the circumstances in your life right now, fearful about the future, might I suggest to you that one of the best ways you can deal with your anxiety is to internalize the biblical story of reality so deeply that you come to see every circumstance in your life through the lens of what God is doing in this world that he's made. See, if you belong to Christ then like Mary, the Bible in Galatians 3 says that you are Abraham's offspring. So it's kind of cool. Mary in this song, in verse 55, she's singing about you here when she sings about Abraham's offspring. You are an heir to the same promises of blessing that God made to him way, way back then at the beginning of the biblical story. See, the Bible's story is your story. 
And when you come to see and recognize how you fit into that big story, it's going to transform everything about how you think about your personal circumstances. Your trials, your failures, those are more than just unplanned interruptions or uh, immediate crises that are destroying and derailing your life. Those are things, tools that God wants to use to shape your character and prepare you as a pure and spotless bride for Christ's return. Your successes, your victories, they're not something to boast in. They're something that's supposed to give you a foretaste of a future glory. If we're persecuted here on earth right now, it just reminds us of Christ's supremacy as he reigns in heaven. Your sicknesses, your sadness, if you're lonely, if you're tempted, all of those things are meant to create in us a longing, an awareness that there is something more, that we are meant for a time when Christ is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes and we're going to spend forever together with him. The highs, the lows, the gains, the losses, when you come to recognize where you fit into the big picture of what God has done and what God is doing and what God is going to do in this world that he's made, then everything gains meaning. And that's how we are transformed from people of fear, anxiety, pessimism into people of unshakable faith and hope. Mary got that. And that's why she could sing the song that she sings in this passage. You know, I, I think it's funny. The, the most popular song right now about Mary in the Christmas season asks the question, Mary, did you know? Mary, did you know that this baby boy had come to make you new? This child you delivered will soon deliver you. Mary, did you know? Well, if only the author of that song would have read Luke chapter 1. <laughs> I just, I picture them lying awake at night, sitting in bed, just tortured, asking, Mary, did you know? I hope they haven't lost too much sleep over that question. It's right here in the text. Yes, Mary knew. Mary knew what Christmas is all about. Christmas was God's proof that he cared about her as an individual. Christmas shows us that God cares deeply about justice and mercy for the oppressed. And Christmas shows that God cares about the promises he makes to his people. If we can come to see this event, the birth of Jesus, like Mary saw that event, it's going to shape us into a community of hopeful people who live out a radical vision of justice and mercy as we wait with expectancy for Christ's second advent, the time when all of God's promises find their final yes in Christ's return. May God be shaping us into that sort of community this Christmas. Let's pray. Lord, would you please purge us this morning from any sense of entitlement? Fill us instead with a sense of wonder that you would choose to use the circumstances of our lives as a part of your big work in the world. Give us the perspective of Mary this Christmas, God that we might praise you as our Savior with a confident hope, knowing that you care about us, you care about this world, you care about the promises that you make to your people. May it be to your glory in Christ's name. Amen.